And please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. It's on the outline as well. There's no aspect of our lives as believers in Christ that should not be seen through the lens of our faith in Christ. He defines our existence. Uh, there's no decision too small to not consider what Christ might say about it. In fact, our faith in him really gives us new identity, gives us a new way, a new perspective of life. Hebrews writes about Abraham, writes about the patriarchs, those original believers, you might say, and gives some insight that helps us understand them better and also uh, to form our lives by. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things not seen. You know it's true because God has made this promise. That's what faith is. And this is what we have seen exhibited in the life of Abraham and Sarah, by extension, for sure. Later in Hebrews 11, again describing Abraham, who we have been studying for some time now, since the 12th chapter of Genesis, and now we're at chapter 23. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you all this land. It'll be your inheritance. He died not having received it yet, not in the fullness that God promised, but he knew it was going to come. He knew that there was more than just this earthly life to look forward to. Hebrews 11 further says, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they recognized their place. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's their faith perspective. That was their faith perspective. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, Ur, they would have had an opportunity to return. They knew it had to be something greater than the here and the now. That's Abraham and Sarah for sure. It's to be us. Hebrews eleven sixteen is preparation for today's passage in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham knew that God had prepared for him a city. He knew the promises were real, and they would be realized in his person. But he also realized a much greater fulfillment awaited, and that's what he lived by, what was to come, that fuel what he lived according to in his days. Abraham lived his days on earth as preparation for eternal life on the earth to come. The pinnacle of Abraham's life was probably, at least his faith, was in the last chapter that we just studied, that's Genesis 22, where he obeys God's command to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him at Moriah. Abraham believed God's specific promises about his son Isaac. And as the promised son, he knew that God would resurrect Isaac. For God's eternal promise to be sure, Isaac could not stay dead, and Abraham believed in God's promises. That's what prompted him to obedience. Now we come to chapter 23. This is the twilight of Abraham and Sarah's life. His beloved princess, as he calls her, Sarah, dies. By faith, Abraham and Sarah left the Ur of the Chaldees to follow God's promise. By faith, Abraham rescued his nephew Lot from the northern warlords and received praise from Melchizedek, that Christ-priest figure. 
By faith, Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's been a long trek, and his wife has faithfully been at his side the whole way. Now, by faith, Abraham mourns and buries his beloved wife. By faith, Abraham also, in doing this, in this whole episode, he claims the eternal promises of God, even at the end of his earthly days. So here now, God's inspired, authoritative, and sufficient word, Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. That's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went into the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, that east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we are reading about the end of Sarah and Abraham's earthly days, but we are also reading about the fulfillment of your promises beginning to unfold in earnest. 
we are reading about faith concerning the days that lay ahead. Give us the eyes of faith to interpret the eternal significance of the days that we are now living on this earth. May we see the need to view this world through the lens of eternity and in light of our adoption as your sons and daughters through Christ. May we too greet your eternal promises from afar, realizing we are currently strangers and exiles on this earth, awaiting the great day of your heavenly city to come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Even the burial of his dear wife, Sarah, was according to his belief in God's promises. Even his burial, his doing the burying, his mourning, his grieving, is by faith. We'll also see in the bigger picture, he claims one of the greater promises of God by his actions. The reason Moses gives all the details here is important. Abraham will claim for his own possession land in the land of promise for the first time. So let's begin by seeing Abraham and his personal mourning in the burial that he begins as part of this mourning for his dear wife. Then we'll look to the wider picture of his claim on God's promises in that land. Verse 1 says that Sarah lived 127 years, 4,000 years ago. They're still living longer lives. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, Sarah is without a doubt one of the greatest women to ever live, certainly one of the great women of the Bible. No other woman in Scripture is spoken of like Sarah, not even Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her age at death is listed, which puts her among the most noteworthy people in the Scriptures, the only woman whose age is given in the Scriptures at her death. Think of all the hardships that Sarah endured during her life. Think of all the patience she had with her husband and with her life. Now, maybe you can relate, but she was married for a hundred years. This is Sarah. All the patience, all the love, all the compassion, all the care. Think of her, her beauty that is described by the Scripture, outwardly and inwardly. What a woman Sarah was, the wife of Abraham, the mother of the faithful. The seed of the woman, initially in Genesis 3, would come from Eve and then on down the line, and Sarah is one of those women. The first one after the explicit promise given to Abraham is made. And then the one to whom the son, the son of promise, is born. The Messiah would come through Sarah. When she died, she would have been married to Abraham for almost a century. She followed her husband all over a foreign land. Despite enormous wealth, they never settled anywhere for long, always up and moving again. She endured a great number of bad judgments on his, on his part. A few of those could have led to her death. Yet, Scripture records no complaints for her, from her about that. In her weakest moment, we remember when she gave in to the, to the moray of the culture around, seeing she could not have a child in her mind. And running ahead of God, she offers Hagar, her handmaid, to her husband. This is a bad choice, for sure. And this led to much pain in her life. But even that flawed choice came from a place of love and respect and care for her husband's name in the land. Twice in the Bible... Believing women 
are given Sarah as their example. The Scottish Presbyterian Candless shed well of Sarah. The tenor of Sarah's life was very private, unostentatious, and unassuming. She tarried at home. The leading features of her character, which the word of inspiration commends, are these. Her holy and unadorned simplicity, her meek and quiet spirit, an ornament in the sight of God of great price, and her believing and loving subjection to a believing and loving husband. Sarah is given as an example in 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what the apostle says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Even if you got a bad husband, your conduct could steer him in the right direction. When they see you're respectful in your pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Don't let the outwards define you. That's what he's saying. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's, in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now back to our passage, verse 2. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He intentionally goes in to mourn the loss of his partner, his one flesh partner, Sarah, and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and went to the Hittites. We'll see that in a moment. Mourning is the action, the right action taken by us when someone we love dies, especially our spouse. Grieving is part of human existence. It's even, it's even ordained by God that we should do such a thing. We do know there's a future reunion to come, but separation for this time on earth is painful. Even though the years don't match up to much in eternity for our existence, it's a long time. And it's right for us to acknowledge that pain of separation and mourn it and weep over it. And that's what we see Abraham doing. In Ecclesiastes, the writer says, there's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. We need time when this happens. And we should take time as Abraham does. There's intentional steps that we might take or actions that we might take to allow ourselves to grieve and mourn when this happens. One of the beauties of historic Christian funeral services is that they're conducted with a balance of grief and belief in God's promise. Grief in the fact that sin has disrupted our relationships and has brought this pain into our lives, and we acknowledge it, we admit it. But belief that in Christ there is a resurrection, an actual resurrection that awaits every believer, and we look forward to that. A combination of grief and belief. That's what goes into our mourning process. Sometimes I think that the modern American experience really loses us as Christians. I know it's meant well, but when the first action after one dies is to have a quote-unquote celebration of life, it's too early. It's too early. We have to grieve. We have to weep, and that's okay. We should spend time celebrating their memory and their life and so on and so forth, but right after, it's time to go to God. It's time to go to God and mourn what is real, to recognize our own immortality, 
to cry out to him and believe on the one who has raised the dead, the firstborn among the brethren, the Lord Jesus, your Savior, means that your loved one who is in Christ will rise again, as will you, and we'll see one another again. But for now, it's a painful thing. Grief and belief, this goes into the mourning process, and surely we see it with Abraham. He rises up in verse 3 from before his dead, and then he goes to take care of further responsibility, to take action to bury his wife. This is still part of his process. He weeps and he takes care of those responsibilities. The burial of his wife that he would attend to is the last earthly act of faithfulness to her. But it's an act of faithfulness before God as well. It's an act of faith in God also, this burial process. The painstaking care he takes with Sarah's earthly remains shows his faith in God. Now recognize, as a sojourner who owns no land, normally if this is the case and someone among you dies, you have to keep their body with you in your camp, in your caravan, wherever it is. This is why the text describes having a gravesite to put her away from him because she wants to have that place where the body sees corruption. But what a terrible thing it would have to be if you don't own anything and you have to keep the body of that loved one with you in your camp. Later in the passage, Abraham buries Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah. Let me say that from this point forward, we see in the Bible and in Christian history that burial is the preferred method of dealing with our dead. Christians never cremated their dead throughout history until very recent times. And the reason for burial is important, and the reason why it becomes the norm, with some exceptions, obviously. It has to do with sowing something as a seed that will corrupt when it goes in, will be raised in incorruption. It's a statement of faith about the resurrection to come. And it's painstaking. It is costly. It it means something. It's part of the process. And by burying Sarah in this case, in the promised land, he was practicing his faith. This land represents the ultimate new heavens and the new earth. And I'm going to sow her there because at some point, God will raise her again from the dead. And there's a very careful way about doing this. It's a way of honoring the dead in Christ and declaring our faith in God for them. It's a statement of faith in the resurrection. He pursues a tomb in the land of promise. So even his burial thoughts and his mourning are by faith in God's future promises about that land. Both in the here, even though he would die, his children and their children would be buried there because eventually it won't be the Hittites that own it. All the land around it will be his, his descendants. And there we have first a statement of faith in God, not just about the immediate future, but about the eternal future. Much is wrapped up in the actions to even find a burial place for his beloved wife. He places Sarah's body in the tomb knowing she would be resurrected in the heavenly Canaan that was promised to him and to all who believe. And our burials should have the same expectation. That's his last act, his faithful act towards Sarah as her husband. You'll notice how important this feature is in the text when constantly we read eight times before his dead. Verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead. Verse 4, that I may bury my dead. Verse 6, bury your dead in the choices of our tombs to hinder you from burying your dead. Verse 6, verse 8, that I should bury my dead. 
See how important and precious this is, to bury your dead. I give the price of the field, accept it for me, that I may bury my dead there. Bury your dead. It used to be that every church was built, and the very next thing they built was a cemetery. Some built the cemetery first and the church after. So that everyone in the church always had a reminder, we're all going to be there. What does that mean for today? Are we right with Christ? And we look forward to the resurrection, and we sow our bodies in corruption, looking for the day in which they'll be incorruptible. Abraham personally mourns the loss of his wife by weeping and providing for her burial. He also does something else that leads us to the second point. Uh, by the actual grave site that he acquires, we get to see this colorful display of a haggling and a bartering that would have been typical in the ancient Near East. In fact, many places in the world, you could still see it like this. No price tag on something, and you start the discussion to get to where both parties agree. This whole thing is on display for us as Moses depicts it. And Moses is being careful to dep depict this so that every audience after could see how out in the open, how official this land transfer was. So there's no doubt that Abraham owned land in Canaan. Someone else may claim the land, but they'd be stealing it because he bought it. He believed in the promises of God to give that land to his descendants, so he wants to own this land where Sarah and many of his descendants would be buried. We see Abraham's land deal now, starting in verse 3, as an act of his claiming God's promises by faith. Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he goes to the Hittites. And there's a council uh, that represents the Hittites at the gate of the city. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you, he says to them. Give me property among you for burying a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Out of my sight refers to that preference to have a, a place outside of their camp that could be designated for burying the dead. Now, to this point, what land did Abraham own in Canaan? Canaan was the land that God promised, but yet his 127-year-old wife just died, and they've got zero land deeds. No pieces of paper to show they own any bit of it. Now, it's true. They were given an easement by Abimelech to a well, but that was only as good as the next generation remembered what Abimelech promised. That got them started. They had water for their, for their for their animals, their crops, their people. But that was not land ownership yet. Abraham believed God's promises, even though he could not see it being realized. And he has this moment of opportunity, while he's still sojourning on this land, losing his wife, to buy now, to acquire now, an actual piece of land for his own in Canaan. What ensues is not only Abraham acquiring a gravesite, but also acquiring land for his descendants, and it's a description, it's an outflow of the fulfillment of God's promise to give him and his people that land. This is the start. Verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. I'm not a citizen. I'm a resident alien. I recognize that. I don't have any legal rights here as a citizen, but I would like to have just a piece of land to bury my dead here. The Hittites answered, verse 5, Hear us, my Lord, they know who Abraham is. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. We've got grave sites all over. Pick the choicest of them, the best of them. If you want uh, Arlington National Cemetery, you could take your dead and bury him there. The best place you, you take your pick. You're a prince of God. 
None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from buying your debt. Initially now, this is a, a genuine offer for sure. They knew who Abraham was. They also knew who Abraham was and, and weren't sure about him having a piece of land now, but yet this is Abraham. They knew his significance. They could see his calling as a prince of God. They heard of his massive wealth. They could see it. They could see the hundreds of people who answered to him and the curses that befell those who opposed him. They knew it was the stuff of legend, his military campaign some years before, where he routed the kings of the north to rescue his nephew Lot. They knew this was the Abraham they were dealing with. They knew that Abimelech had to move out of his way. They heard what God had done in giving his 90-year-old wife, who had no prior children, a baby at age 90. They knew God was with him, but they also knew that his people probably would grow if they had a spot to set down their roots and get a foothold. They didn't want him to have this land. Hear us, you prince of God, anywhere, take your pick. Abraham does something very shrewd next. Instead of speaking to the faceless council about this request, he goes right to a person. Now what's the significance? The council doesn't want a foreigner, especially Abraham, to gain that kind of foothold. But now when Abraham speaks to an individual on their council who could do a business deal, make money off this business deal, considerable money, they're not going to step in now and say that Ephron can't do that. So they kind of stand aside while Ephron and Abraham start to haggle, barter a bit. Look at verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. It all focuses now on this guy. That he may give me the cave of Mechvelah, which he owns. He's getting specific now. At the end of, it's at the end of his field, that cave. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. He knows exactly where it is. Now Ephron, verse 10. He's sitting among the Hittites. There's an opportunity for sure. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in hearing of the Hittites of all who went into the gate of the city. Here's the point. It's very official now. They know who Ephron is. They know the land he has. There's many witnesses. Abraham's standing in front of them. No question that a land deal is going down. That will be official. That will be legal. No, my lord, Ephron says, I give you the field and I give you the cave. Do you see what he just did? Abraham's asking for what? The cave. Hey, I'll give you the car and this trailer that goes with it too. You, he's already adding to the deal. I'll give you the field and I'll give you the cave that's with it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now it seems now that he's just going to give it to him. That's not what's happening now. Now he's starting to haggle. This is just the way they did it. They're feeling each other out about a price. Now with that response, Abraham knows he's going to get that land. It's kind of like when you put an item on eBay for auction. You list a minimum price, and then you list the buy it now. As soon as one bid comes over the minimum price, you get an email from eBay that says, your item will sell. That's what happens here. When Ephron responds as he does, Abraham knows that I'm going to acquire this land. Verse 12, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it for me, that I bury 
my dead there. I'll take it. I, I will pay for it, though. I don't want you to give it to me. I'll pay for it. Give me a price, is what he's saying. And I love the response. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Very nonchalantly. That's an exorbitant price to charge. It'd be like if you're standing out you know, you saw a car that you had when you were a kid. It's an old beater station wagon, but you see someone with it. And you really would like to have it because it reminds you. And you say to the person, the person starts to realize, man, you really want this. Yeah, this, this old uh, wood panel caprice from 1984. Hey, what is it but $100,000 between the two of us? What? $100,000? That's what happens here. There it is. There's the price. I'm sure he expected Abraham to respond with a lesser price. Now, how do we know it's exorbitant? We don't know for positive the values of shekels across the Old Testament because the years are many between. But we do know this is 400 shekels of silver. Later, um, some 1,000 years later, David built an altar for sacrifice, the precursor to the temple sacrifice area. He paid 50 shekels for that. Jeremiah paid 17 shekels 500 years after David, 17 shekels for a potter's field. Not a great piece of land, but 17 shekels, bigger, bigger than the field in the cave. Here, the price of the cave, the field, 400 shekels. But Abraham not only had it, he knew it was a worthy investment. Plus, everyone watching would never, ever forget the day that old Ephron sold that guy a cave for 400 shekels. Everyone was watching. Abraham listened to Ephron, verse 16, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver. He didn't even haggle back. This is how determined. What a, what a message, though, it was. Determined to carry through with the proper burial for his wife by faith and determined to own a piece of the land that was his. They didn't know it was his. He weighs out 400 shekels. It's, in the, it's named in the hearing of the Hittites, verse 16, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights and currents among the merchants. Moses making no mistake. This is their land. Now remember Moses. Hold for a minute. Moses is writing to who first? The Israelites who had just been rescued out of Egypt. He's writing in 1440. He's talking about events that happened 600 years before. So he's, he's trying to describe their ownership of the land they're about to be told to go take. This is your land, Israelites. Your father Abraham bought land. He owns land there. And Sarah's buried there. Isaac's buried there. Jacob and their wives, they're all buried there. This is your land we're going to. And this is just a mere picture of the real land we're going to have. And go in faith when God tells you to go. Because it's your land I'm giving you, he says to them. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham. You see the official nature of this language. As a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of the city, everyone saw him take ownership possession of the land and the land of promise in the land of Canaan. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Here we have a fully secured contract. Abraham now owns land in Canaan. Not only Sarah would be buried there, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And later, although Joseph isn't in that exact grave, Joseph himself says in Genesis 50, back when he's in Egypt, and he tells the sons of Israel who are there in, in, they're in Egypt for some 200 more years now to grow, to go back to the promised land. And he says, by faith, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Don't let me stay, don't let me buy my body stay in Egypt. Take me to the promised land. In Hebrews 11, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who designer and builder is God. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What a beautiful thing is the first land that's taken by the people of promise is to bury their dead in faith, knowing that the, faith, the dead will not stay dead in God. In Christ, they'll be raised again. That's the first land they buy. Abraham's life, the practical where the rubber meets the road for you tomorrow, or right after this service is over, it's a reminder that every action for you as a Christian, as a believer in God's promises, ultimately in Christ, the ultimate promise of salvation in him, your life models this, that every aspect of it, every action, involves your faith in Christ giving you direction, giving you clarity, shaping your perspective, your value, your view of things. Mourning by faith and claiming by faith. That's what we see. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is a treasure trove of wisdom and insight. Pray, O oh Lord, that we would take to heart what we have seen even in this difficult uh, moment in Abraham's life when the wife of his youth dies physically, but yet we are moved by the faith that is shown here. It, it compels us to think on these things with a, a special care. Thank you, O oh Lord. May our lives be colored with the faith that you've given us so that we see everything through that lens. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn together to 469. 469 is how sweet and awesome is the place. Let's stand and sing the first 469.